Good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we'll also, we'll have the scripture up on the screen um, as well. So this is, this is week three of Advent, uh, and it is week three of us reciting the Apostles' Creed together as well. And so I'm going to continue to propose over the next couple of weeks that for us to really experience hope peace, joy, and love, in order for us to experience those topics that we love to talk about around Advent and Christmas time, that in order for us to really experience those, we have to go back to what do we believe about God? What do we believe about God? Because what we believe about God, we will see, is what, what leads us to hope. What we believe about God is what will lead us to peace. And what we believe about God is what will lead us to love. And this morning, we're going to talk about what we believe about God is what will lead to joy, to joy. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And, and to help guide us in what we believe, in addition to looking at, at the Scripture, we're also going to continue to learn and recite together the Apostles' Creed. And so I know I just had you sit down, but we're going to keep you on your toes this morning. Let's have you stand back up, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed once again together. We'll do this one more time uh, next week. So re recite this along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so now we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Let me, let me pray as we continue our worship. Father, I do ask that you would attend uh, these, these words with power. God, I ask that you would speak and that you would give us hearts to listen, uh, to embrace your truth, to respond to your truth. Lord, I ask that you would help me get out of the way and that you would do what only you can do. Lord, I ask that you would teach us, you would change us all for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, and Hebrews 11, which we preached from a couple of weeks ago, you remember it's the chapter kind of known as the, the hall of faith. So starting with Abel, the writer goes through person after person in the Old Testament who had by faith been commended by God. And now we arrive at Hebrews 12, and verse 1 then starts out this way. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every, let, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." 
Now this morning, we're going to mainly focus in on verse 2. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before him. Now let's first understand what we mean by joy, okay? There have been many preachers and writers and authors that have tried to differentiate and make a distinction between joy and happiness, okay? And they're well-intentioned in doing so, but you've maybe heard these arguments in the past before that, that, that kind of joy is this deeply rooted kind of godly thing, and happiness is more this superficial, fleeting emotion, Okay, um, like, and so they try to make this differentiation, which I would say the Bible does not do that. Okay, the Bible uses happiness and joy, and a lot of times interchangeably those words throughout the scripture. And so when I talk about happiness and when I talk about joy, I'm speaking of a, this deeply rooted emotion and delight and pleasure. Okay, so you might hear me say happy, you might hear me say joy. I'm speaking of those things in a in a in a biblical kind of deeply rooted emotion. Okay, joy and happiness. So biblical joy is not necessarily like uh, the Lego movie, uh, Everything is Awesome song, all right? Do you guys know that song? For, for those of you that maybe have not watched the Lego movie, there's a song called Everything is Awesome, and they just sing over and over, everything is awesome, you know? And it, it's really catchy, it's really annoying, it's probably stuck now in your head for the rest of the day. Uh, but, but biblical joy, biblical happiness is not necessarily that, okay? It's not this fake, like, hey, everything is awesome, right? And I'm just going to be happy and just, you know, even though there's some things going on, like just everything is awesome. That's not biblical joy. That's not biblical happiness. And that, that song, it often reminds me of how we can act at church, right? How kind of fake church people can come into church and we just put on this face. We try to pretend like we've got it all together and we just say everything is awesome to one another, even though in reality, like everything is not awesome, Right? Everything is not awesome. We know we live in a world that's been fractured by sin. And so all, all, all the time, everything is not always awesome. Biblical joy and happiness, they're not this fake, cheesy, superficial feeling because we know, right? There's hard things in life. There's, there's things that people are struggling with and going through. There's suffering. There's hardship. And so you've maybe heard some of these messages or read articles that, you know, joy and happiness, they're these two separate things. But the Bible says, no, both joy and happiness, they're these deeply rooted emotions that delight and take pleasure, okay? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So I don't agree with the notion that you shouldn't pursue happiness. I think you should. I think you should pursue happiness and joy. The idea that God doesn't care if you're happy, he just wants you to be joyful, I think that is, that is false. Now, the Bible does talk about this, the, the fleeting pleasures of sin, okay? So it does give a category for kind of these, these fleeting pleasures of sin, this temporary kind of like good feelings that we can get from, from chasing after sin or things that, 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 the, that the Bible kind of commands not to. So there is a category for this superficial feeling, but, but what we want to talk about this morning is this biblical, deep-rooted joy, happiness, and blessedness. Now, let me share with you a frustrating thing about joy, 
okay? I'm going to share a frustrating thing and a crazy thing about this deeply rooted emotion of delight and pleasure that we call joy and happiness, okay? Here's the frustrating thing. It can't be forced. That's frustrating. You can't force joy. Like, I can't just make myself be joyful or happy. I can't command you and make you be joyful or happy. I can't just willpower it. Like, you know, pull, pull myself up by my bootstraps and just, I am going to be happy. I am going to be joyful. Like, no, you can't, you can't force that. I can't tell you to just be happy, right? Now, I can tell my boys, I can tell them, hey, be kind to one another, right? And they can change their behavior to be kind to one another, but I can't just say, be happy, and they automatically be happy. That's frustrating. That's the frustrating part. Now, here's the crazy part. And as I think about it, it's also a frustrating part too. So maybe they're both frustrating, but this one's sort of crazy. God commands us, to feel something that we cannot muster up in and of ourselves. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, now this is a great verse. Uh, if you want to start memorizing more scripture in 2019, start with this verse. It's two words. Your confidence levels will be at an all-time high for scripture memory. Uh, if you start with this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, it says, rejoice always. Rejoice always always. That's a command. Rejoice means to be happy, to be joyful, to be glad. Always means always, right? That's a classic, classic pastor joke I went with, right? The Greek for always, it means always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, but, but how can this be? We are commanded to rejoice always. How can God command us to feel something that we cannot do in our own power? Doesn't he know that life is hard? Doesn't he know that most of the time in life, everything is not awesome? But thanks be to God, he does provide what he commands. And we're going to see that in a second, okay? One of the famous prayers of Augustine, he said, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. Okay, Father, you say rejoice always. I hear you. You're going to need to do something to make that possible, right? Command me what you will, God, but you're going to have to do something to make that possible because that is not something I can just do in and of my own strength. Now listen, every human being, we have a desire to be happy. We have a desire to be joyful, okay? But because of our sin, our pursuit of happiness and our pursuit of joy is all messed up. It's all out of whack. It's all messed up. So in our pursuit of happiness, we often pursue these fleeting pleasures that end up, don't, they don't, they end up not bringing us joy. And then we're confused as to why it's so hard to rejoice always. 
I mean, I don't even think I have to, to make a compelling argument for that this time of the year, right? All month, you are bombarded by what friends and family say will make you happy. All month, you are bombarded with what marketers and advertisers are telling you will make you happy. All month, you are bombarded by yourself telling you what will make you happy, right? If just this family gathering would go perfectly this way and I can meet with this person and we can watch this movie with this song and wear these PJs, then I will be happy right? All month you are hearing these messages of what is going to give you joy and what is going to give you happiness. But what happens on December 26th? Maybe, maybe even late in the day, December 25th, what happens? You realize they were wrong. You realize they lied to you. They played you, right? And listen, you will always, you will always be frustrated in your pursuit of joy if you don't first understand this, if you don't first understand that your joy has already been obtained for you at a great cost. Okay, we're going to talk about that phrase the rest of this morning, so I'll say it again. Your joy has already been obtained for you at a great cost. Every part of that sentence is important, okay? Your joy already obtained for you at a great cost cost. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. Jesus, who is the Christ, Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Now, in order to fully appreciate this joy that was set before him, you've got to understand what enduring the cross means. Okay, and to help guide us, let's go back, think back to the creed that we just recited. It said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He was crucified, died, and was buried. When we recite that creed, we're saying we believe that Jesus Christ suffered. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And listen, understand, the Romans at that time had perfected this cruel form of execution called crucifixion. Okay, people being crucified, they were nailed to a cross. They suffered this prolonged and agonizing death where they struggled with every breath and eventually died from suffocation, right? This typically wasn't in private, but crucifixions would happen in public places, along public roads, you know, out in the open so that the shame would be maxed out so that people could pass by and that they could spit on the person being crucified. They could mock them. They could curse them. And not only was crucifixion bad enough, but before Jesus was crucified, he was flogged, he was whipped, he was beaten to the point that you couldn't even recognize him. An executioner's whip, it was often called a cat of nine tails. It consisted of long leather straps at the end of it were were pieces of metal and glass that would rip into the person's skin. This flogging would often kill people on the spot before they even got to the cross. We believe that Jesus Christ suffered. He suffered. And not only did Jesus experience betrayal by Judas, not only did he experience an unfair trial with false testimonies, not only was he flogged, not only was he crucified, but the ultimate pain and suffering he experienced was then the wrath of God being poured out on him as a substitute for our sin. Jesus was forsaken 
by the Father so that we could be reconciled with the Father. He took our sin upon himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for it. Now, church, some of you are like, geez, man, like save it for Good Friday. It's Christmas, right? Like what in the world? This is a Good Friday message, man. You got your calendar mixed up. Why are we talking about this? But look, we've got to have a glimpse of what enduring the cross means if we're going to fully appreciate and rightly treasure the joy that was set before him, the joy that was obtained for us. Because we will always be frustrated in our pursuit of joy if we do not first understand that our joy has already been obtained for us at a great cost. At a great cost. Think about some of the best gifts you've ever received, all right? This is more Christmas-themed, okay? I'm getting back on track, all right? Think about some of the best gifts that you have received, whether Christmas time, birthday, I think probably all of us at some point have had just some amazing, we've gotten an amazing gift that, that is memorable in our brain. I remember still there was a Christmas when we lived out in California. Uh, I remember getting our basketball hoop, right? That was something we could put up in the cul-de-sac. It forever changed my life, just what I would do every day, play basketball with friends. Like that's, that was my childhood, right? That basketball hoop, getting it, it was a memorable thing. I also remember the first time our family, we got a computer, okay? And it was a super sweet computer. It was one that when you turn it on, it only took about an hour to warm up, right? And so after about an hour, then you could get on it. You could play these sweet games. Uh, one of them uh, was, was Minesweeper. You guys remember this? Anyone else used to sweep those mines? Yes. Like whatever happened to that game? It was a good game, right? Uh, but, but yeah, I would, so I remember getting our computer. It was great. It was great. But one thing that most great gifts all have in common is that they come at a great cost. Now, I'm not just talking financially, although some great gifts might, might be financially a great cost, but a lot of other great gifts, they came at a great cost because they cost someone the time and the energy and the thoughtfulness to get you something right. So some of the best gifts, they might not be the most expensive ones, but they were the most thoughtful ones. Someone had, it cost someone some time to think and, and, and really understand what you are going to like as a gift. Maybe it cost someone some hard work to put it together. But most, most great gifts come at a great cost. This Bible that I hold in my hands is one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received uh, because it's not just any Bible. This is one of Dad's old Bibles, all right? And so you can see uh, it's not in the greatest of conditions, Uh, but I've heard that if a man's Bible is falling apart, his life usually isn't, and so I think that uh, describes dad, right? You can see that you you can barely read it. It's mainly all marked up in highlights and circles and underlines. There's some smiley faces in here, right? I mean, it's just covered. Every page is highlighted. Every word almost is highlighted, all right? But, But listen, this is a great gift, This is a great gift, not only because there's some sentimental value to it, but because it cost my dad, man, hours and hours of study and working through God's word, years of just praying through this word. It cost 
a great amount to, to put together what I have in my hand, not only God's word, but then my dad's just notes and underlying and highlighting. It now serves me. It gives me an insight into his walk with the Lord. It now inspires me, right? It serves me to remind me that, that, that the things that I see in his life, the characteristics that I want to emulate, the way that he is a, a father and a husband and a pastor, the reason he is those things is because of the time he spent in God's word. And so it serves to inspire me. This is a great gift, but it came at a great cost. And in the same way, the joy that was obtained for us by Christ it comes at a great cost. But it is a great gift. Jesus suffered, crucified, died, and was buried for the joy that was set before him. But what, what, what happened after he endured the cross? Now this is where the sermon starts to get fun, okay? Because we read in the creed, he descended to the dead. Now, that's the version and that's the phrasing that we've chosen to use as this church. Uh, that's, that's more of a modern version that other like-minded churches feel is the most biblically accurate and is really getting at what the, uh, the original writers of the Apostles' Creed, what they intended to write. But you will read in some other versions of the Apostles' Creed, and some churches still recite it this way, uh, the phrase goes, he was crucified, died, and buried, and descended into into hell, okay? And you read that at first, and you're like, uh, what was that? Jesus went where now uh, after he died? Uh, and so this has been the question, uh, honestly, since I brought up the idea of a, the Apostles' Creed at our leadership meeting like a few months ago. This has been the question, does the Bible say that Jesus went to hell? And so if we're going to be reciting the Apostles' Creed, we do need to explain this a little bit, okay? And so after some time of study, I have a short answer for that, I have a medium answer, and I have a long answer, okay? The short answer to, did Jesus go to hell? The short answer is, not really, okay? The long answer, let's meet and get coffee, we'll talk, okay? The medium answer is what follows. All right, stick with me. All right, so this is an important question, though, because we read, right, some versions of the creed, he descended into hell, and most of us are like, now, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure he said to the thief on the cross that today I'll see you in paradise, right? He didn't say, I'll see you in hell, right? He didn't say that, and it wouldn't have been like that anyway, but, but, but uh, he, he said, today I will see you in paradise, so what's, what's going on? So to clarify from the start, we do not believe that Jesus went to hell in the way that we commonly think of hell, okay? Because some people have, have taken that statement from the creed, and they've come up with some false doctrines that claim that Jesus had to go to hell to continue to suffer for us even after his death, right? Which we would say that is false. Uh, the payment on the cross was sufficient. It was a sufficient sacrifice. Jesus even proclaimed it. It is finished, literally meaning paid in full. So there was nothing after his death on the cross that he had to go suffer anymore uh, for us, okay? The price 
had been paid. But the confusion comes in regards to understanding when they wrote the creed what the second century Christians meant when they said hell, okay? And they meant something very different than what we think of when we think of hell. So let's, let's understand some terms. So in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, the word that is used to describe the realm of the dead is the word sheol, sheol which Sheol means the place of departed souls, okay? The place of departed souls. In the New Testament, the Greek equivalent to that word is Hades, okay? So Hades and Sheol are the the place of departed souls. Now, according to certain passages, like in Luke 16, that you can go look up on your own, Jesus tells a parable about Lazarus and a rich man. It would appear that the people of God, before Jesus died on the cross, was buried, raised, and ascended to heaven, that our, that our Old Testament peeps, right, the, like the Hebrews 11, those commended by their faith, that when they died, they went to Sheol or they went to Hades, meaning, meaning the place of the departed. Now understand, the place of the departed has two divisions, a place of blessing and a place of judgment, okay? And Jesus referred to the place of blessing as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, which you can choose which of those phrases you like best, all right? But that's what he calls the place of the blessed, all right? And so you had Sheol, the place of the departed souls, In two divisions, Luke 16 said there's a great chasm that one cannot pass from the other. And one side was the place of Abraham's side, the blessed side, and the other was a place of of judgment. Now, the New Testament also uses a word called Gehenna, which is a word we would commonly think more of as hell, being an eternal place of torment, lake of fire, all that stuff. We know uh, like where God's wrath is going to eternally be. The Bible in no way teaches that Jesus went to Gehenna, okay, or to the place of judgment or torment. But it does teach, the Bible does teach that he died. His body and spirit were separated, right? His physical body was put into a tomb, and his spirit went where the people of God went when they died, all right? It was the realm of blessedness and not suffering and torment. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10, it says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so it would seem consistent with these passages in addition to others that Jesus, when he died, went to the realm of blessedness where the people of God who had died before his death on the cross went and he ransomed their souls, okay? So Psalm 49 verse 15 says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, He eventually ascended right into heaven to sit at the Father's side, and he led the people of God from Abraham's side to heaven. And now when a believer dies, he is present with the Lord in heaven. So there are some differing views on that. The more you look into it, I mean, you're going to get different arguments about how you interpret different passages. But we know he died on Friday. We know he rose on Sunday. The controversy is what happened on Saturday, right? And and I think what we can say uh, most surely that we know is that he did not go to hell. He did not go to a place of suffering or torment. 
But when he died, his spirit went to a realm of blessedness and paradise with the spirits of the people of God who had gone before him. Okay, And so while this, the, the phrase in the creed might be confusing uh, uh, for us to say he descended into hell, that's why we've chosen the version that says he descended to the dead. Okay, We believe that's a much more uh, accurate picture of what happened. The good news is, come back with me if I lost you and all that, all right? And again, we can meet up if you want the longer conversation on that. We know and believe that he did not stay dead long. Amen? But on the third day, he was raised to life. And being raised, he proved that he was truly the Son of God. Being raised to life, it proved that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. It guaranteed, it guaranteed that followers of Christ, that our sins had been paid for. It demonstrated his victory over death. It guaranteed that we now are redeemed and rescued from the kingdom of darkness and that we have been reconciled with the Father by being united with the Son and that we will, like Christ, one day be raised to life again as well. And not only did Jesus raise to life, but then he ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as our sympathetic high priest who is not naive to our suffering, but himself has experienced more suffering than we could ever even imagine. And although now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, we know that one day he will return to right all wrongs and to judge the living and the dead. Look with me back at Hebrews, okay? Look with me back at Hebrews. Remember, remember what we've been saying, that you will always be frustrated in your pursuit of joy, if you do not understand that your joy has already been obtained for you at a great cost. But we still got to answer this question. What is this joy that was set before him, that he would endure the cross? Like, all the suffering that went with leading up to the cross and then on the cross, the spiritual anguish of the wrath of God being poured out on him. What was this joy that was set before him? And Psalm 1611, I believe, answers this question. It says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy that was set before Jesus that he endured suffering to obtain was the very presence of God. It was the joy, it was the pleasure of the presence of God that Jesus saw, not only for him to be restored once again to perfect fellowship with the Father, but, but for his people to be restored into the presence of the Father. Jesus saw the pleasure, the joy, the happiness, and the glory of the presence of God, and he looked at his suffering, and he said, worth it. I'll endure it. It doesn't even compare. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. 
we only right now get little tastes of it. We get little slivers of joy. But church, one day we are going to be full on joy. We're going to experience the fullness of joy. Jesus knew the joy of living in the presence of God and being perfect fellowship with the Father. And so he suffered and was crucified to obtain for his people what they had lost in the garden, right? This is a story of redemption for the joy that was set before him to bring his people back into the presence of the living God. But you see, our, our pursuit of joy and happiness, it gets all messed up because we start chasing all these things that we think if we pursue them, then we will be happy and then we will be joyful, right? So we pursue money, we pursue power, we pursue status, health, comfort. And listen, all those things, they're not necessarily wrong to pursue. And, and they might provide some fleeting pleasure, right? Some temporary intoxicating effect, feel-good effect on us. But they will not provide a lasting, full joy, okay? What we need is we really need to simplify our pursuit of joy. It's been going in all different directions, What's your plan for joy? What's your pursuit of joy look like? If it looks like my life, it's, it's all over. I'm looking for joy in all these different places. And so we need to simplify our pursuit of joy because in our sin, our pursuit of joy has just gotten way too complicated and confusing and leading us down roads that do not end with true, lasting fullness of joy. So let me simplify for you, uh, for you this morning uh, because I think the Bible simplifies it as well. True, lasting joy, fullness of joy is found in God, right? In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And our joy, our entrance into the presence of God is something that was obtained for us by Christ at a great cost. And it is his joy that becomes our joy. Okay, so if you're taking notes, write this verse down and look up on the screen. John 15, verse 11. Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy that was so highly valued and treasured that Jesus endured suffering to obtain it, it is that joy that he offers to us. But what are we to do when joy feels elusive? Right? We've talked about this. You can't force it can't make you be joyful or happy. I can't make myself be joyful or happy. What are we to do when it feels like joy is eluding us, that we can't find it? What are we to do on those dark nights of the soul, right? Like those times when you know that you should be joyful, those times that you know you should be happy, like those times that you even then feel guilty because you know people around the world have it way worse off than you do. So why are you not joyful? Why are you not happy? You know that all the right things to say about what God has done for you and what Christ accomplished on the cross. And yet there are still times you know you should be joyful, but it's elusive. 
You try to pursue it, but you can't find it. What are we to do? There are times when logically in your brain, you know you should be joyful. You know that Christ suffered on your behalf. You know he was crucified, died, and raised. You know he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you on your behalf. In your head, you know you should be joyful, but your heart still finds it to be elusive. What do you do? What do you do? And I'm not going to get real practical this morning. That's, I think that's a few steps down the line. And we can certainly meet and we can get practical about that. I mean, things from eating right to exercise to community to quiet times to all those things. You can get practical in your pursuit of joy, but all those things aren't really going to make sense or click until you understand the big picture first, okay? And so this morning is, what do you do when joy is elusive? We need to understand big picture first, because listen, if you ever feel this way, take heart. This is the angst, and this is the tension in living in an already, but not yet kingdom. So we've talked about this in the past as we've preached through the book of Mark. When Jesus showed up on the scene, started his preaching ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Meaning God's kingdom has broken into the world with the advent, the first advent of Jesus, but it will not be fully re uh, realized until his return, his second advent. And so we're living in this tension between the two advents of a kingdom that is already here, but it's not yet fully realized. And so in the same way, the joy that was obtained for us by Jesus is available to us now. It is. We are in his presence, right? We are in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And one of the fruits of that Spirit is joy, right? But listen, fullness of joy, fullness of joy will not be fully realized until we meet Jesus face to face and the kingdom of God is fully realized. We live in the already, but not yet. So take heart if you feel some angst and some tension and some struggle there. That's a normal thing in the period of time that we're living in, in between Jesus' two advents, okay? And so while we live in the tension, and while we live in the angst of a kingdom that is already here, but not yet fully realized, when joy feels elusive, understand this. When joy feels elusive, understand this. It is not that God is hiding joy from us. It is not that God is withholding joy from us. It's that he's preparing us for joy. He's preparing us for fullness of joy in his presence. Listen, this Bible is a great gift. It costs a lot. It brings great joy. And someday I'm going to pass it down to one of my boys, okay? But listen, if I gave it to Jordy right now, Jordy is two years old. Listen, he would not enjoy this gift as much as I enjoy it, enjoy it right? Two-year-old Jordy would not enjoy this the same as 32-year-old Grant enjoys this, okay? So if I gave it to Jordy, he'd probably look at the pages and think, oh, it must be a coloring book. That seems to be the common theme. You know, he'd probably start coloring in it. He'd probably rip the pages out. He'd maybe eat the pages. He would most definitely use it as a weapon, right, against his brothers, right? 
He would not fully, he would not fully delight in and take pleasure in this gift. Why? He's not prepared for it. He's not ready for this. He's, he might get it someday, but he's not ready to fully enjoy the pleasure that comes with this gift that was purchased at a great cost. He needs time to grow up. He needs to learn and understand how precious the word of God is and not only how precious and priceless the word of God is, but just how, how priceless these notes and highlights are from his pappy, right? He's not prepared for this joy quite yet. And in the same way, the joy of the Lord, the pleasure of his presence, it's almost too sweet. It's too glorious. It's too good. It's like looking at the sun. Like, don't do this, but you can't stare straight at the sun. It's just, it's too glorious for us to fully enjoy that way, right? We're not ready for that. And listen, living in between the first advent and the second of advent will, of Christ, it will cause us to be, to have times where joy feels elusive. But when joy feels elusive, you've got to understand this. Don't listen to the lies. He is not hiding joy from us. He's not withholding joy from us. He's preparing us for joy. And if he's preparing us for joy, then praise God when we pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin and they leave us empty and they leave us longing for more. May we quickly run back to Christ, right? And if he's preparing us for joy, then praise God for seasons of longing for his presence. You should be longing for his presence. Praise God for the seasons of, of, of think, thirsting and hungering for his righteousness and for him to satisfy us. And if he's preparing us for joy, then praise God when we look at the world and we see that not is, it's not all that it should be. People of God, praise God and rejoice. He's preparing us for fullness of joy. And so if our joy has been already obtained for us at a great cost, and if God is preparing us for joy, then how do we pursue joy? And I'll make it real simple. Pursue Christ. I know that's the Sunday school answer, but sometimes Sunday school got it right, okay? Fullness of joy is found nowhere else but in the presence of God and entering the presence of God, through, there is no other way except through Christ. So listen, it's not wrong for you to want to be happy and joyful in your job. It's not. It's not wrong for you to want to be happy or joyful with your finances or your health or your relationships. There's nothing wrong with that. But listen, the pursuit of Christ and the joy that comes from being in Christ, that is what will enable you to have lasting joy with your finances, whether this month is in the red or the black. The joy that is found in Christ is what will enable you to have lasting joy with your vocation and your job, regardless of if you got hired or if you got fired. The joy that is found in Christ is what will enable you to have lasting joy with relationships during conflict and during peace. 
The joy that is found in Christ is what will enable you to have lasting joy in hardships and in suffering and in persecution and in times of mourning and grieving. The joy that is found in Christ is what will enable us to follow the example of Jesus and endure suffering and endure living in the already but not yet kingdom because when we despair, we can fix our eyes on Jesus and we can follow his example for the joy that is set before us. And this is what we will do this week. This is what you will do this week. We will go to Hebrews 12, verse 3, and we will consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Everyone knows Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Verse 3 gets left off a lot. I wanted to talk about verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, right, in our place, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, in life, everything is not always awesome. Wanted to say that one more time, just if it wasn't already stuck in your head, that way it is when you leave. But Jesus knows this. And he has experienced suffering, a type of suffering that we will never have to experience. And he gave us this promise and this hope. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, I'm closing with this, okay? Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, he was trying to prepare them for his death and resurrection and ascension. He said this in John 16, verse 20. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray.